informing America's farmers and ranchers. This is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Well, hello, folks, and welcome to AOA. Thanks for making us a part of your day today. And my goodness, what a day it is going to be for those of you across the northern and eastern plains and Corn Belt. You're going to see some weather. We're going to talk with Greg Solier, Ag Meteorologist, here in just a moment about what's ahead. And then in segment two, we're going to take a look at urban restaurant demand. It's a category I haven't dug into very much, but Hillary Russ is a Reuters journalist. She recently did some deep dives into high-end restaurant demand as we get into the holiday season. And I think it's interesting as it relates to how the consumer can continue to purchase the stuff we're growing on our farms and ranches. And then in segment three, we're going to talk with attorney Jeffrey McCoy. He's with the Pacific Legal Foundation. And this year, he has represented two different bodies in front of the U.S. Supreme Court speaking about agricultural issues. The Foster family in South Dakota has been on his radar and Will Wilkins out of Montana. Both are dealing with perhaps an overactive federal government. And Jeffrey's going to bring us up to speed on how those cases are proceeding. And we're going to close the day with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services looking at this cattle market and how it could play out over the coming weeks. Before we get into all of that, however, folks, if you are in the northern plains, if you're in the northern Corn Belt, get those feed sacks on your fuel filters, get those heat houses, uh, housers on those open station tractors, and get ready for some cold. Greg Solier joins us now. And Greg, talk through Wednesday. Who's going to feel the impact of this winter storm? Well, Mike, thanks for uh, having me on. And I tell you, it will be bitter, biting, bone-chilling, nose-numbing, and toe-tingling. And it's already doing so in many areas of the Canadian prairie and uh, points uh, to the east and south uh, this morning. And uh, we've dispelled the rumor that you can't uh, snow, you can't get it to snow with sub-zero cold. But I tell you, folks, it is coming down healthy through the better part of central Minnesota with readings of 5 to 10 below zero on current air temperatures. It is snowing steadily across a good part of eastern through south central North Dakota, 15 below on average right now. And that's just the eastern flank of this cold, Mike. It is beginning to penetrate southward on dual Arctic boundaries. And it's just not a little front that waffles on through. Uh, these boundaries are coming on through with a healthy dose of wind gusting 25, 30, 35, close to 40 miles an hour. So that opens up another can of worms. Whether you were forecasting, for example, quickly into that Midwestern blizzard at a foot in some spots or an inch in others, it all gets blown around and lifted, and it may not officially qualify officially in terms of meteorology as a blizzard, but a lot of folks on then through the flatter areas of the plains and Corn Belt know when it's zero visibility, it's zero visibility, that is a blizzard. But the cold air is the knifing southward, and by this time tomorrow morning, that Arctic boundary is all the way to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex. Just remember, two weeks ago, it was tornadic activity in that part of the country, and a precipitous drop in temperatures, perhaps even a touch of snow as far south as the northern end of the Delta. That's pretty much the story here over the next 24 hours or so as the snows begin to un, at least unwind out of the Dakotas, but expand in many areas of the western Great Lakes, upper Mississippi Valley, west Western Corn Belt and Eastern Plains, again, as far south as the Red River Valley of the South, uh, this time tomorrow morning. And Greg, it sounds like Thursday is when this thing really starts to intensify for a large segment of the population. I understand Chicago is in the bullseye, bullseye in one of the busier travel weeks of the year. How do you see this rolling out on Thursday? 
Yeah, for folks who are from this part of the Midwest, and it kind of brings back memories of 2011, the great the Groundhog Day blizzard, right in the beginning part of February, in this what we call bombogenesis. It's typically a term that you hear out of the northeastern states of New England, a, a, a nor'easter, if you will. Well, this is the Midwestern version of it, or put it in another context, what you see in rapid deepening this time, or at least as it applies to the Gulf states and tropical systems, uh, within about a six-hour time frame, we'll go from a couple of dual Arctic boundaries that will make it into the western Great Lakes, into the eastern plains, and then bomb out or develop a weak low out of Indiana at the start of the day tomorrow, and then by late tomorrow evening, overnight tomorrow night into Friday morning, it is one doozy of a low uh, over Michigan. It's web of pressure lines as far west as the Missouri, as far east as the Appalachians, and the cold air is going to generate uh, killing frost and freezes all the way to the south end of South Texas Citrus. That's the lower Rio Grande, a three-day freeze event on tap with some of the southern states not getting out of the teens or afternoon temperatures and come either Christmas morning or uh, the day after, uh, even a frost or freeze as far south as about a Tampa Orlando line, the far north end of what is still ongoing citrus down there. But it will be brutally cold wind chills, blinding visibilities from snow and blowing snow. Generally speaking, a few inches, the heaviest corridor, probably somewhere into parts of northern Illinois, Indiana, Michigan, and Wisconsin. But there, some spots, 10, 15, 20 inches, especially around the south end of Lake Michigan, with another utterly just a whiteout of, uh, of snow and blowing and blizzard conditions there. And that wind will not really wind down, nor the storm, until sometime late in Christmas Eve Saturday or even Christmas Day Sunday. Oh, wow. So this is going to continue to generate uh, snowfall on the 23rd and the 24th. Greg, when all is said and done, um, the snowfall there in Michigan farther east is possibility that could continue to climb those totals yeah, exactly yeah, because remember now the water lake uh, great lakes waters are still largely unfrozen but this is you know bitter cold air they'll freeze up quickly but still be able to generate healthy additional lake snows michigan far northern indiana ohio into pennsylvania new york state uh that likely to continue on even into uh early next week beyond christmas day itself but cannot really uh you know under uh or even overemphasize i should say the degree of bitter cold wind chill in the plains little bit livestock losses keep an eye on that where they're already dealing with a big snow cover already across many northern plains the dakotas parts of minnesota to begin with so we need to keep an eye on actual air temperatures and in some spots here to the canadian border will touch 40 below actual air temperatures 30 below, maybe into far south uh, areas as far south as uh, I-80 around the Corn Palace to Empire region and points westward from there. Sub-zero cold all the way into the south end of south uh, uh, winter wheat areas. That will kill it off because of the ongoing dryness and drought. There's no snow cover to speak of Oklahoma, northern Texas. And of course, we'll see some record lows and probably uh, killing off of some winter vegetable areas across the deep south and southeastern United States as well. Greg, at the very top of the show, you mentioned that this is a rumor that we can't have snow when the temps get this cold and we're putting false on that rumor today. Yes. But look, what is it about this that's different? Why are we getting snow if it's negative 30 degrees real air temperature? Yeah, really what's falling is not necessarily snowflakes, which start as ice crystals and they tend to soften and evaporate some to take on that snowflake look in a more normalized temperature pattern for wintertime. This is sheer ice crystal stuff. That's why we talk about the ratios of uh, water equivalency and snow versus how much, let's say, rain you could get out of it. Typically, one inch of rain gets you 10 inches of snow. Well, this is such a powdery, icy content snow, literally ice crystals coming down at 20 to 25 to 1. There's not a lot of moisture in it, but that's the reason between and for the fact that we can blow this stuff around. 
and salting mechanisms don't work. There'll be the need for recurrent plowing as well because the stuff gets blown around easily on 20 mile an hour winds, let alone, by the way, 55 to 60 mile an hour winds are coming out of this blizzard for Minnesota, Wisconsin, into the central uh, Gorm Belt, by the way. So that's why we keep talking about so little snow versus the blowing and drifting that will take place in so little snow and the whiteout visibilities. But in any event, yes, you can still make it snow. You get the upward momentum in the atmosphere. You can still get this moisture to come down. It's just basically sheer ice that's coming down versus anything resembling typical normal snowfall across the Midwest. Oh my, this is going to be something, folks. Stay safe, stay bundled up. Bitterly cold air temperatures and very strong wind. Wind, Greg Solier, meteorologist from This Week in Agribusiness. Greg, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Have a great Christmas and stay safe out there. Indeed, folks, and stick around. Hillary Ross, Reuters journalist, will join us next with a look at high-end dining in the urban areas. How are they doing? Stick around and find out. We'll be back with more AOL. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. can't get my computer to work. Let me help you with that. How'd you do that? I just got techie with Geeks On Site. Our geeks literally come on site. No need to stop what you're doing or block off time. We come to your home, office, or wherever you are. And we don't just fix whatever computer issues you might be having. We explain and teach you along the way so you can feel empowered and then help others at home or in your office. Better yet, don't have time for tech support to come to you? Let us remote into your desktop or laptop, and one of our geeks will instantly walk you through. We offer affordable prices on our remote services and IT support. You and those in your office will never have to wait hours to have your technical questions answered. Get your free computer diagnosis today with your very own geek. Get started now and we'll help you instantly. Call 866-967-3879. 866-967-3879. That's 866-967-3879. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. As an organ donor, your story doesn't have to end. The good in you can live on. In fact, you could save up to eight lives with your gifts. Your heart could keep beating. Your kidneys could keep filtering. And your intestines could keep on digesting for others. And that's not all. You can improve the lives of 50 more people as an eye and tissue donor. Restoring sight and health. And you're not just helping out the person receiving the transplant. You're touching whole families with your life-saving gift. Register in minutes. Just go to organdonor.gov. You'll be happy you did. And just maybe, someone else will be happy too. Sign up today. Go to organdonor.gov. It saves lives. 
U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Health Resources and Services Administration. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. You know, for the past year, market watchers have been digging into the economic data that comes from government agencies, hoping to get a handle on the direction of the U.S. economy. Listeners to this show know we check in with Dr. Glenn Tonser once a month on the meat demand monitor. How are consumers faring when they stand in front of that meat case? And it's certainly worth noting that uh, we can't find everything we need to know in the official figures. Sometimes, in order to get to the bottom of an industry, you got to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with a source. And joining us today is Hillary Russ. She's a journalist with Reuters, and she recently did a deep dive into the health of high-end restaurants. And Hillary joins us now. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. So, Hillary, you are on the restaurant beat over at Reuters. I know you typically cover the fast food market, which we'll talk about here in just a moment. But with inflation on everybody's mind, you did a deep dive here into high-end restaurants. And what were you expecting when you started reaching out to those folks? I did. Um, I wasn't too sure what to expect, to be honest, um, because, you know, as you mentioned, inflation has been on everybody's mind. Uh, so we had certainly seen a lot of price increases, menu price increases in the fast food industry, but I really wasn't sure what was going on in in fine dining and high-end dining. Uh, yeah. One of the interesting, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to ask you to, to before we get into the depths of it, the high-end right. dining that you're talking about, where, which which cities did you take a dive into, Hillary? Sure. Uh, I, tend, I looked, uh, tried to get a nice picture from around different cities in the United States. I looked at New York, Chicago, uh, out in California as well. Um, so try to get a little bit of a sense from, from the Midwest and the East and the West Coasts. And I will say, you know, uh, fine dining is certainly is not something that everybody can afford. I know I can't most of the time, but it is an economic indicator and uh, it's something that we like to look at. Um, and it's important and interesting because it gives us a sense of where companies are, are, are faring, how they're faring, if they're booking a lot of private events it means they're doing well. Um, if people, uh, individuals are booking a lot at fine dining, it means the economy uh, is robust. Absolutely. And I think from the, the audience perspective of AOA, those high-end dining establishments that are selling those cuts of beef for north of $100 certainly bring some value back to farm country. So, mm -hmm. Hillary, what's the bullet point? How are these high-end restaurants faring here as we move out of COVID but potentially look towards a recession? Mm -hmm. uh, they're they're doing surprisingly well. Um, I think you know for much of this year they've been recovering quite a bit. Obviously, 2020 was horrible. Certainly around the holidays, um, 2021 you thought you were going to see some strong recovery, and you started to. Uh, and then Omicron took a real bite out of things towards the end of the year, and so did bad weather in a lot of places. Um, so the high-end restaurants are are doing well. Um, for many of them, their private booking, uh, their private booking events and holiday parties, are back to 2019 levels. Um, individual bookings as well. Uh, obviously, the holiday season's not over yet, and we're already encountering another uh, upswing in some COVID cases and some bad weather. But generally speaking, people were bullish on the holiday season and, and what it holds for these uh, high-end steakhouses and other fine dining restaurants. 
Well, that's good to hear. Glad to hear that business is coming back. Hillary, did they talk mm -hmm. about the business changing at all? Are consumers uh, coming to these high-end restaurants with different expectations here post-COVID, or is it truly, we're looking back at 2019? Mm -hmm. That's a great question. I mean, certainly things have, some things have changed permanently. Um, you know, for example, uh, fine dining now, they, they do delivery in some cases, or certainly pickup. A lot of them transition to Thanksgiving boxes, for example, um, when they had to because people were prohibited by government restrictions from dining inside of the restaurant. So some of those changes are still in place. Um, one of the other big changes that people might notice when they go to eat out at a fine dining restaurant is staffing levels are probably a little bit lower. They're still understaffed compared to where they were in 2019. But the emphasis has really been on getting the atmosphere, um, the celebratory environment back to what it was. And I think we do have a lot to celebrate. And so the restaurateurs that I talked to, many of them were very excited and feeling sort of like things were, if not back to where they had been exactly, they had reached a sort of new level of celebratory, um, of a celebratory environment. And uh, it just, they seemed a lot happier uh, with this return to business. That is good to hear. And I know in some of those major metro areas, there has been a push both by businesses and by governments to get folks back into the office, fill up those uh, those center commercial districts again. And are restaurateurs notice those office workers coming back? Is that helping? Definitely. That's definitely helping. Uh, one of the restaurateurs I talked to, a guy named Kevin Bam, who is a co-founder of Boca Restaurant Group, said that uh, he did notice that a lot of the the comebacks, especially in those private bookings that I was talking about, is related to people coming back to the office. And again, it's, everything is very choppy, right? So it's hard to get a clear direction on exactly where things are going and exactly what's happening uh, because people may be back in offices, just not quite to the same degree. Um, maybe they're back two or three days a week. Uh, maybe they are working from home one week and coming into the office the next week. But But certainly, with the return to office, we've seen return to uh, full service dining. All right. And I'm wondering, you mentioned those prices are higher. That food inflation has hit every dining establishment. What sort of sticker shock would I need to prepare for in terms of what percentage have prices jumped at these higher end restaurants? Definitely. Um, well, you know, it's interesting. It's hard to get a, a precise number um, exactly, but uh, overall, I would say restaurant uh, menu prices have gone up somewhere in the 6-7% range. There's some evidence um, from some of the data that find for, for full-service restaurants, it's gone up even more than that. Um, and then there's other evidence. Uh, I talked to a data firm called Lightspeed, um, which did a bit of, does some surveys and things like that. And they found that fine dining menu prices had not increased as much as other dining establishment. Interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think, you know, because the sticker shock is already there when you're going out for a very fancy meal. So in general, a lot of restaurant owners are really terrified of raising prices too much. They know, especially the independent restaurant owners and operators and the, the smaller chains, they know that if they, if the, if someone comes in and they see that sticker shock, they there's a chance they may decide not to eat there they may go somewhere a little less expensive. They may go somewhere, um, they may just go less often. Um, and so it was interesting looking at the different menu items for a number of different restaurants that I that I talked to and, and some that I didn't even talk to. I was just sort of doing some surveying of menu prices at, at fancy white table restaurants. 
And in some cases, I couldn't find any menu items that had gone up. Uh, in others, it was, it was a, you know, a, on a percentage basis, it was a large increase. For instance, a cheesecake or a chocolate peanut butter lava cake at Tavern on the Green, pretty famous restaurant here in Central Park in New York. Um, those desserts went up just $2 to $16. That's a 14% increase, so it seems pretty high, but at the same time, a $2 increase on a menu price over two years in the middle of record high inflation is something that I think customers know they're going to have to deal with at this point. So it's not too hard to swallow. Um, but then, you know, it also depends on, on the particular menu item in some cases, as you and your listeners know, I'm sure that the cost of beef uh, really went up significantly. Um, so at Boca, one of the restaurants I mentioned earlier, um, their steakhouse uh, prices went up a little bit. Um, some of their duck prices went up 22%. Um, but interestingly enough, uh, one of their other restaurants that they run is a steakhouse called Swift and Sons. Um, they raised the price of their king crab to $138 from $78. Wow. And that's a 70, yeah, that's a 73% jump. That was their biggest whopper um, Oof, of a price jump. That is a price jump. Hey, uh, Hillary, you mentioned it. we're seeing these relatively sticky prices here at high-end dining in the other sector of the restaurant market you cover, fast food. On the other hand, which might be more applicable, certainly to me, how are prices doing? Are we seeing those hikes come across the uh, the menu items? You are definitely seeing those. Um, you may have seen them sort of in the earlier part of the year. I think throughout 2022, they went up um, in some cases uh, once or twice or even three times. Um, normally, uh, fast food chains do a little bit of price increase. It's more in line with the consumer price index. Um, and again, they, they too are loath to, to jack up prices too much. Uh, the interesting thing about fast food restaurants is that they've more, almost all of them at this point are doing a sort of taking a sort of barbell approach to pricing, which is to say that they know that there's a segment of customers out there who can pay a little bit more and they don't mind getting a huge meal or they want to get a crazy sandwich made on, you know, a pretzel bun with three kinds of cheeses or three patty melts or something like that. And so for those customers, they will make sure to have something on their menu where they can really jack the price up a little bit more. Um, for instance, Burger King uh, took its Whopper off of the discount value menu because it's a premium item and they know they can charge more for it. Uh, on the other hand, they, they know people are struggling. They know some of their customers are going to just want to fill their bellies for as little money as they can. And so they make sure to have those items uh, which are where they took a little bit less menu price. Sure. All right. Lots of, of interesting stories ahead in the restaurant market. It seems fair to say, folks, we've been speaking with Hillary Russ, journalist over with Reuters. And Hillary, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Stick around. More AOA after this. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. 
When it comes to making plans, you are the best. What about those round trips, which are perfect on your way there and perfect on your way back? Or those meetings with friends, surprise parties, camps, birthdays. The same way you plan for the important moments, start planning to protect you and your loved ones from a natural disaster. Sign up for local weather and emergency alerts. Prepare an emergency kit and make a family communications plan. Get started at ready.gov plan. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen reporting. As we take a look at the market trade on this Wednesday, we are seeing that holiday trade settle in. Fairly thin action, but we are mostly to the upside. The Algo computers may be amplifying the move a little bit here in the Chicago and Casey wheat markets with some double-digit strength, while quarter beans up just moderately here as we maybe have a little bit of position squaring technical trade action here ahead of the Christmas holiday. But we are doing our best to extend gains in soybeans case we're bumping up against that overhead resistance around 1490 $15 it'll be a question of whether or not we could break through it more than likely probably won't with the thin low volume trade action we're seeing Means having the livestock trade mostly higher there as we work through the session with fairly quiet, choppy markets. Looking at cash cattle country, things are very quiet there. Not even any token bids out there. Asking prices 156 to 157 in the south, not quite established in the north. Probably going to see some business develop today and or into tomorrow as sellers want to get stuff done before the severe winter weather really sets in here at the back half of the week with the bitter cold temperatures hitting much of feeding country. And we expect to get a little action activity here both in cattle and in cash hog trade possibly as traders also keeping one eye on friday's cattle on feed report and quarterly hogs and pigs report that is going to be something to watch here in the trade could have an impact early into next week and as we carry into 2023 Weather is a big storyline. The drought continues in Argentina, but that doesn't mean that it is totally dry. There are times of showers. Meantime, Brazil remains with below normal temperatures and above normal precipitation, and that is helping to keep record crop ideas on the table in Brazil. That's a storyline to watch here as we work into Christmas and into the end of the year. Again, overall markets to the upside on Wednesday. This is AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Jesse Allen. Hey, Dad. Your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. 
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA. Certainly appreciate you joining us for the show today, and we've got a lot to talk about. One of the ongoing themes on this show is keeping up with what is coming out of Washington, D.C. from both a policy and a regulatory issue. And the reason we talk about these issues so much is because they matter. What starts as a paragraph and a piece of legislation in Washington, D.C. eventually makes its way down to your farm. And today, we're going to be talking about two cases that are pending in the court system here in the United States. Both are being argued by attorney Jeffrey McCoy. He uh, works with the Pacific Legal Foundation. And Jeff, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Now, I want to talk first and foremost about the Foster versus USDA case. We spoke about that here on this program just about 11 months ago when the case was first filed in the Eighth Circuit, and it's ongoing, and this basically comes down to a puddle in the Foster Farms field that USDA has determined a wetland. Jeffrey, bring us up to speed on this case. What started in 2011, and how has it moved on since then? Yes. So as many of your listeners will know, Swamp Buster um, says that if a farmer farms wetlands, uh, then the farmer becomes ineligible for certain USDA programs like crop insurance. And so this has been ongoing. Um, in 2011, uh, Arlen Foster, our client, asked for a delineation of the wetlands on his property. Um, he disagreed uh, with the there was this puddle, as you said, that the USDA determined was a wetland for what they thought was a wetland. He disagreed. He appealed that and went through all of it. Um, then a few years later, he was able to get some experts, uh, some wetlands experts to show that the the wetland, the puddle, was formed by a tree belt, uh, a tree belt that his father planted, that the USDA encouraged his father to plant. And without the tree belt, there would no be, be no puddle of water. And he hired these experts and he went back to the USDA and said, I would like a new wetlands delineation based on this new evidence. And they didn't even agree to review it. They just said, no, we're not going to review it. And then they told him when he tried to say, okay, well, you have to review it. That's what this statute says. The statute gives farmers the right to request a new delineation. Uh, they started saying, well, uh, no, we didn't make a decision. So you can't even bring this to court to force us to even look at the evidence. So they had completely locked him out effectively of any sort of appeal process. That's exactly right. And what's even worse is that he first asked in 2017, the USDA said, if you want to review, you have to get evidence that we've never seen before. So we went out, hired these experts, got the evidence, submitted it, and then they said, well, we're not going to review it. And then uh, we filed a lawsuit on behalf saying that the USDA at least has to look at the evidence. And the USDA admitted that they had never seen this before, that this was new evidence, just like they requested, but they still said, well, we don't have to review it because it's all up to us, the agency, whether or not we review a previous delineation. Okay, so their judge, jury, and effectively executioner in this case is their argument. And how have the courts responded to that case, Jeffrey, as you've brought this to their attention? Yes, well, we, we filed, uh, this was a second suit, uh, we, we filed and argued that the statute requires the USDA to at least accept his review, look at the evidence. And unfortunately, the district court deferred to the agency, um, as 
many of your listeners will know, unfortunately, that's a common theme of courts is to defer. Uh, so we have appealed that and to the Eighth Circuit. And we think that it's, it's pretty clear that Swamp Buster, and especially there was 1996 amendments, Congress recognized that they didn't want the USDA to determine when there was a new delineation. And they amended the statute to have it so that farmers can request a new delineation if they think that there was a mistake or if they found new evidence. Um, that's what Congress intended. Uh, there are a few lower courts in Iowa that have uh, interpreted the swamp buster as we said it. Um, but unfortunately, this district court in South Dakota disagreed with us. And that's so frustrating. All of this, Jeff, we, I didn't even lay out the facts of the case. This comes back to, as you mentioned, basically a 0.8 of an acre recurring snowmelt puddle that develops in this guy's field because his grandfather had been encouraged to plant a shelter belt. This must be so frustrating for the Foster family to be in this Kafka-esque environment here fighting this. Jeffrey, what's next? What? How does this case move forward? And what does a win look like for the farmers? Well, I mean, hopefully we can get the Eighth Circuit, and if not, the Supreme Court, to agree with us that the USDA has to at least accept the review. Part of the problem, though, is even if we win, it will go back and they'll look at the evidence. And who knows what the USDA will do at that point. Uh, previously, they've they've sided against Mr. Foster, and that can take years as well. So even we're just fighting. We've gone on a couple of years now just to get the USDA to accept review and to look at the evidence that he's presented. And then it's going to probably be another couple of years for them to determine whether or not they agree with these experts. And Jeff, once this makes it through the court case, this Foster v. USDA would be a precedent, right? Would it allow farmers in the future who are facing these sort of rules and regulations to cite this case uh, to help move theirs along? Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things that Mr. Foster recognizes is that uh, he understands that there is this Kafka, as you said, swamp buster um, program. And he hopes that this will help out farmers in the future. If farmers believe or find new evidence that a previous delineation was incorrect, that they can bring it. And the USDA would have to accept that, would have to start reviewing uh, these. And so other farmers wouldn't have to go through this long process just to get a review. All right. Well, hopefully this goes well in the Eighth Circuit. If it doesn't, I'm glad to hear PLF is prepared to keep this battle going, fighting for the freedoms here of farmers. And uh, Jeff, one of the things that stuck stuck out to me from that Foster case was the fact that the Foster family just ran into an executive agency who just quit working for them. And that's not the only case you're dealing with that has had the same thing happen. U.S. Forest Service told Will Wilkins, as I understand it, that they'd have to sue him in order to get them to follow the rules of the contract. Can you fill us in on the Wilkins case? Yes, that another example. Uh, our, our client, Will Wilkins, he lives about an hour and a half south of Missoula, next to the Bitterroot National Forest. The previous owner of the land uh, granted an easement across the property to the forest, uh, but it was a limited easement. It was for logging and ranching and firefighting and not for, for the public. But in the last decade or so, the Forest Service has invited the public on, which has caused a lot of problems. It's caused, it's a dirt road, so it's caused a lot of erosion, um, which has affected Will's property. 
it um, these people have been speeding <laughs> at dangerous speeds. Uh, some have trespassed on his property, sold some stuff. Uh, at one point, someone on the road shot Mr. Wilkins' cat. Fortunately, the cat survived. But um, when he went to the Forest Service, he said, uh, well, first off, this this easement is for limited use, so public shouldn't be on it. But if you are allowing public on it, you need to do something to control how people are using your invitation. And the Forest Service just responded, no, we're not going to uh, on it. We're not going to do that. We're not going to, we can do whatever we want on this easement. We don't have to patrol it or maintain it and you're out of luck. Um, and, and then they did say, well, you, you have to sue us. And that's what, when PLF stepped in and, and filed a lawsuit. And Jeff, when you say that the Forest Service was encouraging people to use his land, were they just not barring the gates or were they actively encouraging folks to use this uh, limited easement road? Yeah, they put up a sign about uh, 10 years before we filed the case that said public, uh, that said public road. And um, then they, they did the travel management process. Um, at first, they proposed that no one would be allowed on the road. Um, but then after eight years of uh after eight years of bureaucratic uh procedure they decided to publish that the road was open um okay okay so they have they've officially announced the public is welcome on this road and jeff i'm wondering that easement with limited access that i assume is written into the contract isn't it i i know this case is pending before the u.s supreme court but don't they just have to read the contract well, yes, and that's what it said. And there was even a cover letter on the contract that spelled it out even further that this is for limited use, timber use. Um, so why does the Supreme Court need to be involved? How can they how can they push the Forest Service to just honor the contract? Yes, well, part of it was that the, the Forest Service responded when we filed the suit that they said, well, you filed it too late. There's a statute of limitations and you filed it too late. As I said, part of the reason why we why Will filed it when they did is because they had proposed to close the road. And so he's not going to hire a lawyer and sue when the Forest Service was responding. But after eight years, they decided to open the road, and that's when he sued. But then they said, well, you're too late. Um, and so what we went up to the Supreme Court just on whether the court can hear the case very similar to Foster. All of this, this has gone on four years, and all we're asking for the Supreme Court is to allow the case to move forward and to actually look at the contract. Okay, so we need the Supreme Court to allow a judge to look at the contract and see what the plain text says, and then hopefully they'll be able to make uh, what I think we would consider the proper determination. Jeff, in the midst of all of this, the Wilkins case is pending before the Supreme Court. When do you expect to hear a verdict from the Supremes on this? We think they'll probably issue their opinion in the spring, March, probably. Okay, so we'll be watching then to see how this unrolls there at the Supreme Court level. And then, Jeff, no doubt we'll be getting you back on to talk about how this Foster case is proceeding in the Eighth Circuit. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. Folks, that was Jeff McCoy. He's an attorney with the Pacific Legal Foundation representing ag cases, and we certainly appreciate him joining us today. Stick around. When AOA returns, we're going to take a look at the cattle market. Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services is going to join us. We'll look at how that market is performing ahead of the holidays. Stay here for more AOA. Through the years, you've really kept up with the times. You're on social media. Like, like, dislike. Block, 
Maintained your health? 10,000 steps. I'm a beast. You even programmed your own smart home. In 10 minutes, remind me that I'm a genius. In 10 minutes, I'll remind you that you're a genius. If you can do all that, you can definitely save for retirement. Just go to aceyourretirement.org, a free online tool sponsored by AARP that can help you get on track with your retirement savings no matter your age. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll meet Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach, and in just three minutes, get personalized recommendations to help boost your retirement savings. They're easy to understand and work with your lifestyle. It's quick, easy, and free. Plus, it's brought to you by AARP, so you know they got your back. You are a genius. Take charge of your retirement. Go to aceyourretirement.org now. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. I had to tell everything's changed. I had to tell. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Is your bathroom looking old and worn out? Want to update it, but you don't know where to start? Then let BCI Bath & Shower show you how to turn that old bath into an aisle of beauty and functionality. Our residential bathroom solutions provide the best value on the market, and our customer service is second to none. Our cost-effective BCI Bath & Shower family of products has what you need. Remodeling our bathroom was a big decision for us. They didn't make a mess out of our house at all. And at the end of the day, we had a beautiful new bathroom. And it was a great experience the whole way through. We have the best monthly payment programs in the industry, with payments as low as $68 per month or no interest, no payments for 18 months. For a limited time, be one of the first 100 callers who schedule a free in-home consultation and receive $500 off. Call 800-721-9985 for a free no-obligation price quote. That's 800-721-9985. Factory trained and certified installers made in the USA and discounts for seniors and military. BCI Bath & Shower, the leader in affordable bathroom products. That's 800-721-9985. Corn is native to the American continents and was unknown to the rest of humanity until Columbus arrived in the New World in the 15th century. It took less than 100 years after Columbus's discovery for corn to be introduced to farmers in Asia, Africa, Europe, and the Pacific Islands. After wheat and rice, corn is the third most cultivated crop in the world. The four nations that purchase the most corn from the United States are Mexico and Colombia, who use it as a food ingredient, and Japan and South Korea, who buy it mainly for animal feed. Around one-third of the corn grown in the United States is eaten by livestock, another third is used in the production of ethanol fuel, and the rest is either consumed by humans, exported to other nations, or used industrially. Now that's sweet corn, that's the variety that most Americans grill or boil for cookouts or just eat straight out of a can with a spoon, accounts for just 1% of all corn grown in the United States. These Farm Facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Victor deployed for the first time to Afghanistan in 2003. 
At four in the morning, my phone rang. They said, I regret to inform you that your husband was wounded in action. Victor sustained a moderate traumatic brain injury. I was doing school full time, and I was also then caring for Victor. One of the most important elements of caregiving is taking care of yourself. I just didn't want to forget that I also had goals and that I also had a life. What I did is I challenged Victor to meet me halfway. There are almost six million military and veteran caregivers across the nation. We have our own journey, and we can fulfill that journey at the same time that we are helping our loved one. Visit aarp.org caregiving for a free military veteran's guide to navigate your caregiving journey and better care for your loved one and yourself. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AOA, taking a look at the protein markets on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. Today, they are very festive. We've got green on the screen in the cattle and hog complex, but dairy is all red. Joining us now to take a look at what's driving the protein markets, diving into this cattle complex, we're talking with Dennis Smith with Archer Financial Services. And Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Yeah, good morning, Mike. Thank you. Good morning, Dennis. We've got some action here in the cattle market. We are up triple digits. What are you watching here in the cattle trade? Yeah, boy, what well, we're expecting is some cash trade, uh, and I don't have any cash trade to report yet. Latest information is a 153-bed surfacing in Texas. That's not going to buy cattle this week. It will take higher prices. Futures are just now posting fresh contract highs, Mike. Feb cattle, as I was on hold before the broadcast, put out a new contract high. April live cattle is at contract or has already penetrated contract highs, as well as the June. Possibly more importantly, the Feb June spread is breaking out to the upside. Uh, so this market is poised with the weather situation extremely tough in the Great Plains. Dennis, and that's my question to you today. With that 153 bid in Kansas, blizzard conditions arising later on today for the remainder of the week across much of the Corn Belt. When will this cash trade develop this week? Well, we're not sure uh, where it will go. Uh, you know, call it a 155 in the south last week and a little bit higher that than that in the north. Asking prices 156 to 158 and at 248. Uh, there was a very light trade in Kansas yesterday, as high as 253 for evidently for some fancy cattle that that were going to grade out nicely. The wholesale beef market's moving higher. Major disruption in the slaughter. Uh, carcass weights have peaked because Mike uh, cattle in the northern areas are losing weight, not gaining weight. Yeah, negative 30 degrees real air temperature plus wind does not bode well for that cost of gain figure. Dennis, thinking about the other action in the protein markets this week, Friday's expected cattle on feed is out there. Is the trade trying to get positioned ahead of that? 
Yeah, well, evidently so. It seemed like feeders seemed to be uh, sniffing out uh, the idea of a bullish cattle on feed in the uh, rally they posted yesterday while the live cattle market just slightly higher. Uh, the on-feed should be bullish. Uh, recall last month's on-feed showed the smallest October placements on record. Now we're going to see another light placement rate during November in tandem with a good marketing rate. So the math is bullish, and uh, the supply, Mike, of uh, 150-day cattle on November 1st was uh, below a year ago uh, for the first time since April, and now you've got the weather situation complicating matters. So the supply of uh, finished cattle it looks to get very tight here in the next few weeks. In tandem with that, Dennis, of course, we've got a U.S. consumer still dealing with inflation. How are those wholesale boxes holding up through the holidays? Well, the the uh, the meat demand domestically remains good. Uh, choice beef is in very tight supply. Unemployment rate remains very low historically in the U.S. We're still creating jobs. There's still about twice as many job openings as there is unemployed. Uh, so what recession, you might say, uh, it's not impacting meat demand as far as domestic meat demand, at least not yet. All right, Dennis, I'm watching the markets this morning, and that February lean hog seems to be moving as well. We're up north of 250 so far today. Has anything developed in the hog market? Yeah, what's happening, uh, Mike, uh, apparently in the hog market is uh, uh, slaughter plants are being shut down in Iowa it uh, sounds like Storm Lake is down today. I have confirmation Tyson and Waterloo will be down tomorrow. And then you'll have your normal holiday-type disruptions over the next two weeks. So you're going to clean up that pork pipeline. You're going to see the wholesale pork perform strongly. And that has resulted in a real impressive rally in the Feb hog contract. All right, buy pork now when you can, not when you have to, a little bit later on after these plants shut down. Thinking about marketing, Dennis, back on the cattle side as we get through the blizzard last week, the blizzard this week, the holiday season up ahead, how are marketing going to look when we get to that January cattle on feed report? Are they slowing down? Well, the, it'll be, I mean, some uh, holiday disruption, of course, is normal. This is going to be an exaggerated disruption. Uh, packers uh, are experiencing continued good demand. And right now, at the moment, margins are slightly positive. Packer margins have been uh, fluctuating from, from uh, negative territory to slightly positive territory. Uh, we think that the packer will have to scramble uh, to meet demand expectations after the first of the year. Uh, numbers are going to be dwindling, so uh, it's just, a, in my opinion, just an outright bullish situation moving forward. It's outright bullish on the cattle side. Dennis, of course, the other component of that is the input side for those folks looking to buy more feeders here in the coming months. What are you doing to manage that feed grain risk? You've got to be long feeders in some fashion. We've moved into bullish positions in the May feeder contract, and you have to look for feeder prices to move higher, possibly substantially higher. Of course, that would be enhanced if the corn market was to take a leg down, uh, but that's, uh, that remains to be seen. But uh, we do look for 
rising feeder cattle prices uh, into next year. And uh, when we say rising feeder cattle prices, Dennis, can you speculate a little bit? Are we going to see $200? Oh, yeah, I think that's uh, that's, uh, highly probable. If you look out on the board, what the futures market is telling you, August feeders are at 101.50 right now. November feeders are at, or I should say they're at 201.50 right now. And the November feeders are at 207. Uh, this, this cash feeder market, especially for lightweight calves, is on fire. You will see this market uh, move substantially higher from the front month 183.60 area. Good news for those cow-calf producers, ranchers out there. You've got a lot to deal with over the coming days, but hopefully it will pay off. We've been speaking with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services, and folks, tune in tomorrow for more AOA. Tune in the first Wednesday of every month to listen to the monthly grind here on AOA. It's brought to you by our friends at the National Corn Growers Association, and each month we're going to dig into one specific aspect of corn demand. What happens to this grain after it leaves your operations and enters the global supply chain? That's what we're going to talk about each month on the monthly grind. Again, that's the first Wednesday of every month, and you can also find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It's a show you don't want to miss. This is Ernie Johnson Jr. Sports is about overcoming obstacles, and college coaches work hard to help young men overcome Duchenne muscular dystrophy. It's called Coach to Cure MD, and you can help. Text the word CURE to 501-501 to donate $25 on your next mobile phone bill, or go online to coachtocuremd.org. Text the word CURE to 501-501. Help coaches cure MD. Brought to you by the American Football Coaches Association. Vision loss is not something that you feel until it happens. Most people lose their vision from diseases like macular degeneration and glaucoma, not at birth. With macular degeneration, you lose your central vision. You have a blind spot right in the center of your face, so I can't actually see your face. So even that little circle in which I could see became a big blur. I was 65 when I first was diagnosed with glaucoma. There were no symptoms. I had no headaches. Three million Americans have glaucoma, and half don't even know it. 11 million people in the United States have macular degeneration. You lose mobility, independence, changes your entire life. So many eye disorders can be treated if caught early. My husband tells me that I have beautiful brown eyes, and I don't want to lose that. Make a plan today to get your eyes checked. Visit brightfocus.org to learn more.